Hey, everybody. Okay, this is a bonus episode. This is extra. If 15 minutes of Parsha a week is not enough for you, if you're jonesing for more Parsha, then you, you may know that I teach a weekly Parsha class here at ICAR in Los Angeles every Thursday at noon uh, Pacific time. You're welcome. Um, we've got folks joining us virtually from places as far away as Japan on, on Zoom. And uh, we've been archiving video edits of the classes on YouTube, but we thought we might try cutting down the one-hour class to about 40 minutes for you, for the listeners of the Best Book Ever podcasts that might not be able to fit a midday class on a Thursday into your schedule. So I hope you enjoy listening to these as much as I enjoy teaching them. Um, if you're interested to attend the class from wherever you are in the world in person, then stick around at the end of the podcast. I'll tell you how to register. Um, just like the podcast, it's absolutely free, and we'd love to have you. All right. Hello, everyone. Vera, God, God bless her, giving me plenty of time to prepare here. There's a lot, a lot that I want to do uh, with you all today. Um, there's a, this is a very confusing and difficult section of the Torah that we're moving into, but a very, very important, very critical uh, section of the Torah. And it's really, I think, I feel, especially this year, this is the heart of the Book of Numbers. The story of Korach and, and Korach's rebellion, the mutiny of Korach, the, the, the uprising, what, what, whatever you want to say, um, uh, however you want to call it, um, our sages refer to it as a machloket, a great conflict. And, and that is, that's, that I think is the theme of the Book of Numbers, is conflict, internal tension and conflict among the children of Israel as they take this um, difficult, terrifying, perilous journey through the desert. What they struggle with most, there's all kinds of external forces, but what they struggle with most is, is, is within, is, is each other. And if that is so, then it is especially so this week. The story of, of Korach is the great eruption, eruption, and actually literally the ground um, erupts. Um, but it is the moment, it, it exemplifies the, the theme that's been building um, all along or, you know, it, 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 the very paradigm of this theme. Um, and, it is, and it is, as a matter of narrative, <clears throat> it's the moment where the whole thing could fall apart. I mean, that's, that's really why, the, why is this story such a big deal? There have been many conflicts and complaints and protests and frustrations and even challenges to Moses' leadership before. But this is the moment it feels like the whole thing could unravel and they could just die out there in the desert, 
right, after, after everything that's happened. So why is Korach, why is this Korach story such a big um, what's happening here that is so critical? What, this is surely a story which we have to understand, which really commands our attention. In, in, in the book of Numbers, it's in a supreme way, but really it's one of the most important stories in the Torah. But it's very, very confusing. It's a very confusing story. If you read through it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And um, it's not one way into that mess is to ask the question, wait, who is in Korach's Eida? They call it Eida Toshel Korach, the, the, the congregation of Korach. He had enough of a band of people. You might sometimes translate it as a Korach's band, but he had enough of a band of people that it was really an Eida, it was a congregation. Who was in that congregation? And there's, it's a little bit hard to actually identify. There's a cast of characters that we get out at the, at the, at the opening and we come back to them, back to them. It's Korach, isn't it? It's all about Korach. Korach is the leader. And yet there are all these other names and all these other people and a lot of things happening and the action is very confusing. The action is very confusing. Um, so um, I wanna try to take us through that. Now I will say it's so confusing that this is, I should, I just want to name this because our group is made up of so many different um, kinds of uh, Torah scholars and thinkers and uh, learners that um, some, of, some, of the, some of the group are always aware of or thinking about modern critical historical theories of Torah and the way that the Torah is, has come to be seen by those schools as a kind of composite of various documents edited together um, from different sources, documentary hypothesis, they call it. And this is one of the stories that the, uh, that's, that, 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 that the scholar, the critical scholars point to, to say, oh yeah, you see the way, this is a mashup of lots of different stories. Um, here, I wanna give you first, uh, just so you have access to it. Here's a good summary of how documentary um, uh, scholars, uh, critical scholars, uh, scholars who, who in the school of the documentary hypothesis read this text and um, suffice it to say, they read it as if it's lots of different texts smashed together in various parts um, because they notice that there are lots of different factions and lots of different interests in the story. Now, I don't happen to think that we need the documentary hypothesis in order to explain. I think the narrative actually has a, well, what I want to take us through today, narrative has a, a, kind, of, a, a kind of logic to, to itself, which is confusing, but is meant to be confusing. But you know what? It doesn't matter because it's certainly compatible with any, my point always um, in taking us through a, co like a, co a kind of cohesive, a unified reading of the text in front of us. My point is always that it doesn't matter if the editor was God, Joshua, or the Deuteronomist. In any case, the editor did a brilliant job of giving us a story that is like, that is, that's our Torah. That's, that's a, a, a story beyond stories. So we're going to take a look at that story today. And we're going to ask the question here. I just want to put one thing on screen before we say a blessing. Um, that our, our, our sages um, refer to this, the, the conflict 
the machloket of Korach as the worst of all conflicts. Because they say in Pirkei Avot that every, every machloket, every conflict or debate that is for the sake of heaven, what that means, you know, well, it's a little opaque, but for the sake of heaven will in the end endure, but one that is not for the sake of heaven will not endure. Which is the conflict that is for the sake of heaven? Such was the controversy of Hillel and Shammai. Yeah, that debate, because debate is, an, is, is a good thing in our tradition. Debate's okay, conflict is okay. I mean, this is part of what's so, so difficult about this story. We actually are a tradition that celebrates um, debate, questioning conflict and questioning authority. That's a part of our tradition. So why is this questioning of authority um, such a deep problem? And so they give this questioning of authority, this conflict as the ultimate example of the conflict that was not for the sake of heaven, such was the controversy of Korach and all his congregation. So let's let's uh, say a blessing and we're gonna take a look at that, that, that controversy, that conflict and its meaning in the Torah and also, you know, it's meaning for us in thinking about conflict in, in, our, in our society today. Okay. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher kitshanu v'mitzvotav etzivanu l'asok b'divrei Torah. Thank God for the Torah. Okay, here we go. Uh, let me give you the, the link to the source sheet so you can look at it on your own. And then... Uh, I want to take a look at just the opening lines. We're pretty much going to, our work today is pretty much just to look at chapter 16 of the book of Numbers. If you have a book, you can open up chapter 16. We're going to be moving through um, pretty much all of chapter 16, trying to take account of the action in chapter 16. So here's a source sheet that you can use that we'll be using. And I want to start just with the opening lines. And in the opening lines, we get our kind of cast of characters. Remember, so there are all these factions, and that's that's the lens that we're going to be looking through today, the lens of, of the coalition. The co Korach seems to have put together some kind of coalition. Who are these people? So let's take a look. Um, let's see. Where am I? Here we are. Okay. Um, and, and, and this is how the, the, the Parsha famously begins, Vayikach Korach. And, and Korach, the first word is actually, and he took, and he took, vayikach. And there's a lot of ink spilled over what exactly that means, because he, well, he didn't, he, does it mean that he got up or he took people together? He took whatever, but he took. And Korach took, vayikach Korach, ben Yitzar, ben Kahat, ben Levi, Korach, son, and we get a, a whole lineage here, son of, Yitz, son of Yitzar, son of uh, Kahat, son of Levi, one of the tribes of, of Israel, 12 tribes of Israel, and he took along with, and now let's pay attention, these are the, these, these two names are the other, other names we're going to have to be keeping track of throughout the narrative, along with Datan and Aviram. Datan and Aviram bnei Eliav, and there was someone else, although we don't hear about him much, but On ben Pelet, On ben Pelet, and they were all, those three, Datan, Aviram, and On, were all sons, descendants of Reuben, right? Kohat, Kohat was, a, was a descendant of Levi. Same word there. Maybe I should just make it uh, parallel in this. Descendant 
of Levi, and they were all descendants of Reuben. That seemed, that's named, and that's the first verse. So that's already important distinction, information, tribal affiliations seem important, especially because they're going to be challenging Moses and Aaron's authority. And Moses and Aaron, what tribe are they from? Tribe of Levi. Levi. Tribe of Levi. Yeah. Okay. And then, and this is, this is in the, so you have, now we have Korach, we have these Reubenites that are with him. And then we've got, they came, they, they rose up against Moses together with 250 Israelites. And they were chiefs, chieftains, Nisiei chieftains of the community chosen in the assembly, men, Ansheshem, men of, of renown, men of renown, men of great name. Okay, those 250 are going to be floating around. Let's try to keep track of them as well. They're a little harder to identify. Okay, but our main, we're going to keep our eyes on Korach, the, 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 the great enemy. That, that's a name that goes down in Jewish history. Keep our eyes on Datan and Aviram, uh, uh, these, these two of these uh, Reubenites and keep our eyes on the 250 Israelites, okay? All right, so those are the people that gather together, that's Korach's band, and they get up, and they, they seem like powerful people, like 250 powerful people, like you get a whole, I don't know, all of Congress together, I don't know. They combined against Moses and Aaron and said to him, you have taken, Rav Lechem, you have taken too much. Ki kulam kudoshim, because all of the community are holy, all of them. And God, Hashem, is in their midst, is in their midst. Why then do you raise yourself above uh, Hashem's congregation? It's funny, they turned one into a, just a hey. <coughs> Someone is unmuted. I just heard you cough. Okay. Um, why do you raise yourselves above God's congregation? And Moses heard them and, and fell face down, fell on his face. Now, let me start by saying one of the things that we, I think we think about every year and then kind of dismiss it. And the thing that I want to just acknowledge is, boy, their claim sounds good, R right? Like part of the problem is that when we look at what Korach says, it actually sounds almost beautiful. All of the, the people are all holy. They're all holy. And, and, and God is in them. And that sounds like a spiritual message I'd like to hear. Right, that's appealing. That's that's a beautiful thing to say. And and they, what are they accusing Moses and Aaron of? They're accusing them of lifting themselves up above the congregation and taking too much of themselves. Now, Moses is the leader of Israel. That's not that surprising, but it is important to think about the fact that the other main leaders of Israel have been Moses's brother and Moses's sister. Right. And Moses and his brother in particular are, I don't know what you call Moses, the prophet of Israel, the leader of Israel, and then the high priest. And that seems, that's going to be relevant soon too here, okay? So it sounds like, a, a, like there, well, there's nepotism going on here, right? And why, why do some people get special status? Why do you, have you taken so much power to yourself? All the formulations of this, I think, are very 
easy to speak out and to relate to and to wonder, yeah, why do Moses and Aaron get so much power in this society? Moses chose his brother. There wasn't anyone else better. Now, okay, I, I want to just stop there and, and mostly dismiss that. I don't, we don't, that's a different class. We've, we've actually done that class before. But for now, I, I, I want to just take at, at face value the idea that Korach is, is doing something that our tradition, our Torah, re reflects on as dangerous, or something that he did that was intended to undermine the whole camp and could have ruined everything. Okay, so what is Korach up to? What is he doing? Is it just this beautiful, like, you people are, you, you don't get all the power, we're all holy. But that's not much of a movement, but okay, he's just resentful at, at Moses and Aaron for being, um, for, for being power hungry and for, you know, a family. You could see how a people could start to get agitated if the family was corrupt. I mean, I guess that's what it comes down to, right? If the family is corrupt, it's a just claim. But maybe it's also like kind of democratic or kind of not even democratic, but sort of spiritual. Like we're all, we are all God's holy people. Okay. Okay. Just because there are, are a lot of pieces here, um, I want to give us the next kind of like Moses's reaction to all of this. And then we'll finally open this up. This, this is a really complicated story. So uh, uh, I'm sorry to be doing a lot of the talking up front, but I want to just lay everything out here. And then we'll start to see that um, there's at least a couple of major things going on here. And, and the first place we start to see this, now that we've identified all of our characters, is in the different responses that Moses has to two different groups. Okay, so take a look here. We're going to go back into our source sheet. So the first group here, now this is, look, we just looked at um, uh, numbers one through four. Okay, now I'm just, I, the only reason I'm breaking this up is because the way Safaria looks every works every time I click onto one te text, it takes me back up to the top. So this is just going to be a flowing trip through chapter 16, but I I'm breaking it up so it's easier to access on our interface. Um, and speaking of our interface, can I make it? No. Okay. That's the best we can do. Wait, hold on. I want to see if we can hide. Okay, I can't figure this out right now. Okay, um, okay. So chat. So uh, one th number sixteen, one through four. Now five. In in other words, we're continuing th with the narrative. Okay, here's Moses who had just fallen down on his face, and then he fell down on his face, and then he spoke to Korach, and all his company. And he said, "Boker veYodashem et Asherlo etakadosh." So the morning is going to come and God is going to make known who, be who belongs to God and who is holy and who is the holy one, the kadosh. And God will bring that one close. Meaning in the language of bringing close is kind of like sacrificial language, you know, the, God, close to the sanctuary. You'll be chosen and be brought close to God so there's a, there's going to be a procedure. So Moses says, God's going to decide there's going to be a procedure. And what we're going to do is take fire pans, you, Korach, and all of your group, take fire pans and put fire in them and lay incense on them before God. And then God will choose the candidate whom God chooses. He shall be the holy one. 
and listen to who Moses is talking to. Rav Lechem Bnei Levi, you have gone too far. You have too much sons of Levi. You have gone too far. And actually, I above, I translated that, that same uh, phrase as you have taken too much. So it's really the, the same phrase here. You have gone too far. You have taken too much. It's the same phrase. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. Okay. Moses then said further to Korach, and look again who he's talking to. Hear me, sons of Levi, descendants of Levi. Although so far, the only descendant of Levi that we know about is Korach, right? Because we've named, we've named Korach 250 people from Israel. We don't know their tribe. And then three Reubenites. But Moses speaks to the sons of Levi. Is, is it not enough for you that the God of Israel has set you apart from the community of Israel and given you direct access to perform the duties of, of God's tabernacle and to minister to the community and serve them? Now that God has advanced you and all your fellow Levites with you, do you seek the priesthood too? And here he seems to be talking, and most of the tradition has assumed he's talking, to Korach. As if Korach's main claim here is, I want to be the high priest. Korach didn't say that but that's the way Moses is speaking to him because that's the Levi in front of him and the one who's challenging. And he seemed, and, and here's the last line, truly it is against God that you and all your people have banded together for who is Aaron that you, shall rail, uh, that you should rail against him. You're confronting God. And Moses's point here is God chose Aaron, not me, not Aaron. Who's Aaron that you should be confronting? Okay, so What's the story there? Moses is speaking to the sons of the descendants of Levi and accusing them of trying to take Aaron down. And who, poor little Aaron, leave Aaron alone, right? You sons of Levi, you sons of Levi, you sons of Levi. That's one group. And then, and I know I've been talking for a long time, but this is the last piece that you need before we start to think as a group together about what the the heck is going on here? And then Moses, the whole thing, and take your fire pants. Tomorrow we're going to see who's going to be chosen. That seems like the response. And yet there's something else that happens. And this is where things start to get really confusing. Moses then sent for, they're not there. Moses then sent for Datan and Aviram, the sons of Eliav. Why he doesn't send for On as well, I don't know. But Datan and Aviram, we met. At the outset, Datan and Aviram, sons of Eliav, okay? They're standing there. And now Moses suddenly sends for them. Were they there to begin with, but then they left? They're, they don't seem to be a part of this conversation. They're not, in fact, the sons of Levi. And so there's a new thing happening here. And he sends for them. And then, get this, folks. They say, we will not, they, we're not going to come. We're not going to come. And they say, is it not enough that you brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey, which is a funny thing. They've come up out of the land of Egypt. And this seems like a particularly insulting thing to say. Like you said you were going to take us to a land of milk and honey. What you did is ripped us out of a land of milk and honey to have us die in the wilderness. And now you want to rule over us as well. You want to be our master as we die out here. Even if you had brought us to a land flowing with milk and honey, like you said you would, and given us possession of fields and vineyards, 
Should we guide, should you gouge out the eyes of those involved? And that's a, that's a confusing phrase, but we will not come. Even if you had given us all of, even if you had brought us to the, um, to the, to the place that you said you would, which you have not, do you still have the power to determine where we go? Do you have the power? Can you punish us? No, we defy your authority. And Moses was very angry. Moses was very angry. And then Allah, listen to this. And he said to God, he said to God, don't pay any regard to their offerings, their grain offerings, in particular, their grain offerings. I'm going to put that in. Their grain offerings, that's a mincha. I have not taken a donkey from any one of them, nor have I wronged any one of them. What? Uh, Moses suddenly getting defensive here. I didn't do anything here. I, I haven't wronged these people. I haven't wronged these people who are accusing me of ripping them up out of a good land and leaving them to die in the desert and then to lord it over them in, in the meantime. I haven't done anything to them. And I'll just say one last thing, which is this seems to be a classic phrase we know because Samuel uses the same phrasing when the people say, we want to depose you, Samuel, and we want a real king, Samuel says, I have not, just take note, I haven't stolen anything from these people. I haven't stolen one donkey from these people. Okay, so this is like a way, it seems, like a, either in the Torah or in the ancient world, that like a leader says, I'm being challenged, but I have not, I have not stolen one donkey from you people, because that's what a leader would do, is can just take whatever, like a true, you know, monarch, chieftain, ruler, absolute authority. Okay, all right, all right, all right. That's, that, was, that was already a lot, and there's gonna be a little bit more coming, but now you have all the pieces. Let's start to think about, I see some of you are starting to think about, what is going on here? What are these two groups that Moses is speaking to, right? Documentary hypo uh, hypo uh, hypothesis is gonna lay them, label them as two separate sources, two separate factions, but regardless, what are these factions? What are the two groups that Moses is contending with here? So much so that he has to run from one to go try to fetch another. Oh, Richard, are you talking? I can't hear you. I'm sorry, two quick questions. In the last Parsha, God tells Moses that all of these people will die out in the desert. And I wasn't sure if, and even though God told him to, I'm not sure that Moses communicated that to the people. And yet, the Tan and Avram say, you know what, even if you had led us to a land of milk and honey, instead of letting us all die out in the desert, we still wouldn't trust it. So I guess they had all heard the prediction that they were going to die out in the desert, uh, number one. And number two, last, does Moses know what is going to happen when they bring out the fire pans? Well... So first of all, a really interesting question. Do the people know, are they responding to what's, what's coming? And it, it's, and it seems in the language of Datan and Aviram that, that now they are, there's some general awareness, um, which confirms what we were just saying with Joni, that the people are suddenly realizing that this is the new, the new situation. Um, and then, um, what was the other question, Richard? 
and uh, when uh, Moses commands him to come out with their fire pans the next day. Oh, does he know what's going to happen? You know, uh, it sounds like pretty definite. God's going to make his choice obvious. Okay. Okay. Well, with that, with Mm -hmm. that, I think it's worth also looking to beginning to look and to consider the, um, the responses, the responses, because the question of the fire pans takes us into the, the, um, the, the two tests. There's two kind of tests now for these two separate groups. Okay, so I wanna soon, soon turn to think about the scene with the fire pans when it actually happens. And then we haven't even mentioned the, the most incredible, the, the memorable, vivid image in the story of Koch, which is that the ground opens up and swallows them, right? Miraculously swallows them. And that hasn't been mentioned. What's all this, like, what's all this, you know, fire pan doodads going, doing here, right? What's going on? Okay. Um, all right. But just a, we need a little bit more work in thinking about um, the, the, the two audiences here or the two factions here. There's Korach and the 250 men who Moses refers to as B'nai Levi, the descendants of Levi. And then there's Datan and Aviram, who we know are the descendants of Reuben. And they have, right, and they're very different. One seems to be wanting the priesthood. What do Datan and Aviram want? What is their claim? What is their charge? And another way to ask that question is to ask, why does it matter that they're Reubenites? Why does it matter that they're Reubenites? Why are we told that they're Reubenites? What do we know about Reubenites? Reuben was the firstborn. Well, yes, that seems significant. Reuben was the firstborn. Yeah, that, that seems significant. In other words, they also, like a Levite, they might have a sense that we're a royal family. We're a powerful family. We should, right, okay. There's another thing, though, that we know about Reubenites. We don't know it yet, but we will learn by the end of the book of Numbers that Reubenites, along with Gadites, had a lot of cattle. All right, check check this out, because it seems like this is pretty important information. Um, uh, Where are we? Here, right here. Okay. Um, I haven't taken a donkey from any one of them. Like, look at their claims here. The, the land we were in is was good. The land you're, you've taken us to is horrible. You never took us to a good land like you promised. And his response is, I haven't taken any of their cattle. I haven't, right. Okay, I haven't taken a donkey. Now, the Reubenites and the Gadites own cattle in very great numbers. This is later, Numbers 32. It's towards the end of the book of Numbers, noting that the lands um, of Yazer and Gilad were a region suitable for cattle. These are lands outside of the land of Canaan. The Gadite and Reubenite leaders came to Moses, Eleazar the priest, and the chieftains of the community said, uh, all you chieftains, I won't read them all, the land that God has conquered for the community of Israel is cattle country, and your servants have cattle. It would be a favor to us, they continued, if this land were given to your servants as a holding, do not move us across the Jordan. This is a whole episode unto itself, but I just want to insert it here because it's important information. What we know about the Reubenites is they had a lot of cattle and they were looking for good land to graze their cattle. 
that was who they were. That was their, that was their mission. That was their, right? Okay, so just, just putting that out there, like what is the difference between the Reubenites and the, uh, and Datan and, and Abiram and their interests and then the Levites or Korach and, the, and his Levites and their interests. Okay, um, let's see. I think I wanna take some more, I think folks have something to say about this, right? Matt, I'm looking at you. You got something to say about this. Yeah, Matt. So I am gonna take some of the, the critical theory stuff here because what is interesting to me is that Korak has come in and said, look what you're doing with Aaron. And Aaron doesn't show up. This isn't, Aaron doesn't get a role. Hmm. If this is, you know, one of the ideas is that the priests are writing stuff in here to say, look how important Aaron is as well as Moses, but they didn't put him in here hmm. or God did or whatever. Why isn't Aaron defending himself? Why doesn't uh -huh. Aaron get to say, hey, I get to, and that tells me something. And like a lot of the times, I don't know what it tells me. Uh -huh. I don't know what I'm learning about from that. Okay, good, um, good, good. Aaron okay, appears later, uh, soon later in the story. So he's not absent, but, but, but Matt's right to say that Moses is doing this, all of this negotiating that we're seeing up front Moses, if Aaron's authority is being challenged, which Moses assumes, Moses is the one interfacing and defending it. And, and if, um, and then, and, and, and of course, Moses is, seems to be the person being attacked by the Reubenites as the one who brought them up out of Egypt, who brought them to a terrible land, right? So Moses is responding to some sense, either felt, or imposed upon him that ultimately he's the leader and is responsible for all of these choices. So if Aaron has been made the high priest, it seems that's an accusation against Moses as well. What do you do? And it, it makes sense, right? Like what it, it it's like, yeah, they're accusing a family of conspiring, Moses and Aaron, but Moses is the one with the power. So really they're accusing Moses of sure, you talk to God. Why does that make your brother the holiest person in the camp? Doesn't make your brother the holiest person in the camp. We're all holy, okay? So Moses is the leader of the people. Even if Aaron is seems nepotistically to be another major leader, Moses is the leader of the people. And that's part of why what we come to see, the way we come to read this story inevitably, is to see then Korach as seeking to be the leader of the people, right? And Korach seeking to be, is he trying to be the high priest? It somehow sounds like that. Um, or is Korach seeking to be Moses, to be the new, like which one of them is he trying to depose them both? Then what happens to Korach? What happens to these, what happens to the priesthood? Who's going to be the priest? Is it Korach? Is it just someone that Korach names? Is it other Levites? Where are the other Levites? Okay, so real questions of here of, of like exactly what roles and leadership um, titles get assigned, but we have this feeling that it's Moses versus Korach in this kind of debate, like they're like the two candidates, right? This is what it feels like. All right, all right, let's, let's continue to tease this out just a little bit and then we'll, 
and then we'll take our last dive into like the we'll see the actual the actual the, the ground open up so let's hear from rebecca halpern hi um i really i think moses is such a complicated character and so i'm uh really loving this um I'm wondering if you can offer a little insight into maybe like why does Moses get so defensive because my understanding is that he's always been a very reluctant leader like this is not even necessarily a position that he wants or feels you know qualified to have so to some extent, if someone was challenging me and I felt like that, it might be a sense of relief. Like, wait, maybe I now don't like, and, and not to mention, he didn't like necessarily sign up for 40 years of wandering in the desert, right? So I guess I'm just like, what, why the defensiveness? When you just said it kind of feels like attack on his family's integrity, of course, anyone would feel defensive about that. But why, like falling on your face, like why was he so defensive? Okay, this is a, thank you so much for that, Rebecca. This is a good time, and Rebecca's helping us do it, to re-ask the question that we asked at the outset, which is what is so threatening about Korach's rebellion? Because uh, as Rebecca reminds us, Moses isn't, our whole, our whole sense that, that we know who the good guy, bad guy is here, it, is it partially informed by the fact we know Moses is not power hungry. That's, that's what we know about him, is that he didn't want the job to begin with. So that to, is, for that to, to be the accusation leveled, uh, there are many things you could accuse Moses of. He's awfully grumpy, right? But you can say he's power hungry. He fled from this job. He didn't want to at all. So, like, uh, so that's in our minds. And not only that, just two parshot ago, just two readings ago, people started prophesying in the camp. Just Eldad and Medad started spouting prophecies in the camp. And Joshua ran over to Moses, threatened for him, and said, there are people spouting their own prophecies, and that's presumably a threat to your authority as the sole prophet of Israel. And Moses says, I wish everybody was a prophet. I don't want to be the prophet. Who cares? Let them do their thing. I don't, it's not about me. And then suddenly there's something about this that is really, truly dangerous okay all right uh i want to i want to take one last dive but i i i uh, i'm gonna and a lot of these questions that that folks are asking today they're very good questions they, they come back to this larger question of what do the people know about what god says to moses because god for example tells moses to elect his brother aaron as the high priest do the people know that or do they have to understand that from Moses. And how much of this is about who about Korach saying, who, who knows what you're what yours, who knows what you're um, really getting from God? Who knows what's really happening up there? Okay. All right. All right. So here's what I want to do. We only have 10 minutes. So I want to make sure that I, I say some of the most important things and that we look at the last piece and see how they how how this all plays out. And this for this again. You could go documentary hypothesis, or um, you could read this within the narrative. I think both, both uh, any, anybody who takes a careful, careful look at this story will see that there's at least a couple of things going on. There is some challenge to the religious leadership of the community, that is to the priesthood. Some challenge to that, clearly, that Moses perceives. And that's one faction. It seems to be led by Korach, 
who is a Levite, but he's just got a pack of 250 guys behind him. Are they going to be the new Levites? I don't know, but he's managed to say, I don't buy this. You know, I'm heading, I'm heading in. Does he represent the Levites? It's not clear. So that's one faction is the challenge to religious leadership. Another faction, the Tananaviram, they are, they are uh, cattle farmers. They're shepherds. They're, they're land people. And they are articulating the concerns of just ordinary citizens who are trying to feed themselves, and especially the, the, the cattle farmers among them who have an incredibly difficult job of moving these masses of cattle across the desert and are furious that they were about to go to a land of milk and honey and they're not there yet, right? So those are two kind of uprisings actually happening at once. And one of them we've noted many times before that people are always hungry. People are always outraged at Moses for bringing them to the middle of the desert to die. And sure, we were slaves in Egypt, but at least we ate there. So that we've seen come up again and again, and this feels very familiar, but it's a particular version of it, right? A certain tribe is outraged because they have particular needs. And Korach, here I want to begin to, 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 to articulate part of what I think is happening. Korach has figured out some way to bring them together. Two groups that really have not so much to do with one another, whose causes are fairly distinct from one another, except that they can be united under the general claim that Moses is corrupt and he's just appointing his family members to do everything. So you should be outraged. You should be outraged that they are now the priestly family. Who's to say we can't be the priestly family? I'm a Levite, I should be in the priestly family. That's one concern. And then, you know, and it's these same people who promised you good land. It's these same people who said that you were going to go to a land of milk, milk and honey. Well, so as Korach, so now let's just start to think about who Korach was, who Korach was. Korach is someone who was able to bring together these two concerns at least. And, and then, then like to get 250 powerful people on his team as well seems... Like, I don't know how to read that part. I'm curious if, if y'all do. But there's like a couple of things going on. And if we read them as one narrative, then Korach becomes a very different character. Because what Korach becomes is the guy who knew how to unite many different feelings of discontent and outrage in a society and present them as a general, like, you know, you know, we're going we're gonna to drain the swamp, right? We're going to drain the swamp. Okay. All right. I'm going to turn back to folks who have their hands up, um, but I want to give you the last piece here, which is we looked at two responses that Moses had, but let's also just consider, we don't have to read this in depth, but let's just consider that there are also two, two, two different um, tests, or maybe put differently, two different punishments. We already know that there was going to be the fire pan test. And that happens, and we're not going to read through it in great depth, but that's what happens. And uh, they tell them to lay out 50, 250 fire pans. All of, the, all of the people in Korach's pack, all of those 250 men, even though they weren't labeled as Levites, they all bring out fire pans. And we're going to see whose fire pan God responds to. Fine. There's Aaron and 
they're all laying out the fire pans and Aaron's going to lay out his fire pan. Okay, that that we know. Um, God makes a quick appearance, but we're actually going to, uh, no offense, God, we're going to ignore you for today. Um, and then, then Moses rose and went to Datan and Abiram and the elders of Israel followed him. And he said, and he said to the community, move away from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing that belongs to them, lest you be wiped out for all their sins. So they drew from the, the tents of Korach, Datan, and Abiram, right? But not the 250 other people, those three people. And Korach and, and Datan and Abiram, remember, they're in a different place. They never showed up. And they're now standing outside their tents with their wives and children. And Moses says, by this you will know that it was God who sent me to do all these things, that I didn't do anything wrong to you, that God told me, by this you will know if these people die in a normal way, if these people's death is that of all humankind, if their lot is humankind's common fate, it was not God who sent me. But if God brings about something unheard of so that the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them and they go down alive into Sheol, the underworld, then you'll know that those involved have spurned and spurned God. And scarcely had he finished speaking all these words when the ground under them burst asunder and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all Korach's people and all their possessions. They all went down alive into Sha'ol. Okay. So the two, two very different tests here, one for these Korach and the, or these 250, uh, you know, supposed new Levites and God's going to decide. And then another for um, Datan and Aviram to prove that their claims of corruption are false. And two different things happen. The earth swallows those people up. And then, in case we forgot about the fire pans, one last line here. And then a fire went forth from God and consumed the 250 contestants offering the incense. Okay, not everybody went down into the ground. Not everybody went down into the ground. Korach, Datan, and Aviram and their whole families did. But the fire pan test still happened and the 200 and other 50 people were incinerated. Whoa, like two different factions that have to be dealt with and are dealt with in two entirely different ways. The confusing thing here, I'll just name and then I'd like to hear whatever theories we can collect before we finish. The confusing thing here is that Korach seems to go down into the ground with the Tatan and Abiram, where Korach initially seemed to be part of the, the faction of the 250 new potential new priests or Levites. So like 250 people are incinerated, Datan and Aviram and all their families go into the ground. Korach, not so clear, but, but seemingly goes down into the ground with them. That's interesting too. They're two very different punishments. Why, why? Okay, uh, I wanna turn to, uh, let's see, uh, uh, let's see, Jen Bailey Guerra. on uh, two little phrases, one at sort of the beginning and one at the end of what you read. And one was, um, we're all holy and, you know, God is just as well in our midst as anybody. We're holy and God's in our midst. And then they'll know that, that you'll know that they have spurned God at the end. Because, yeah, sure, we're, we're all holy. That's important to know. There's sacredness in all of us. Yes, God is in the midst of all of us. But that doesn't mean we're all listening. And that doesn't mean we're all acting in accordance with that. 
right? And I think it, we can look at how many of us speak a lot about our relationship with God and God's presence in whichever faith community that we're in versus whether we're actually following through on that or having the presence of God impact our behaviors. It's so easy to summon God, isn't it? Like, I think that's part of what Korach has figured out is that like, uh, now I'm going to say that like, I have, I have the divine message. Like, it's so easy to speak in the name of what I'm doing is righteous, what I'm doing is holy. Um, Leah Matsui. Yeah, this is, it's not cohesive, but uh, the, the earth, the mouth of the earth opening up and swallowing them, the mouth of the earth was one of the 10 things that was prepared right before the first Sabbath. I love that. And I'm so glad that it is, it is used. Um, there's something really terrifying about Korach because he's actually a member of the elite, as you talked about, and yet he's able to gather the support of regular people. We've seen this with a message which seems so good and so universal. This is what seems to have happened throughout the world, um, particularly highlighted in the US with the ascension of Donald Trump and his followers, a person from the elite who was able to gain great support from just regular people and to make him present, he's able to present himself as just a regular guy. Moses is the only person that speaks mouth to mouth with God. Mm -hmm. um, I believe in the one story theory and that the book came from God. Uh, you know, so, so what, what you're beginning to point us towards is a way of thinking about this story in, you know, in, in, in as some kind of map that might help us think through ongoing political and social um, conflicts, struggles, uprisings, and the nature of um, of political debate and 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 even revolutionary um, uh, uh, conflict. And you know, it's that's always complicated because if the ruling powers are corrupt, there should be a revolution, right? But or or or, or you know, so corrupted that there cannot be an election, so then there should be a revolution. But, you know, it is also true that the, that the, the, the rhetoric of revolution, the, the injustice of it all, the divine cause can, can lend itself so easily also to just power hungry demagoguery. You know, those who can, who can stoke the, the anger and the hatred in the country and unite various forces that don't seem to have anything to do with each other under the banner of how dare you? We're the people, we're the, we, we the people, we, a popular uprising. We're seeing a popular uprising here, right? Um, Rashi said, and Korach took, and Korach took, 
That's how it starts. And it seems to me that that must mean that he, he, his big, his big thing was that he took together lots of different factions and put them into one group. Right? That's what he knew knew how to do. Is he knew how to how to bring together a coalition of anger. Our sages say that like it was a machloket it wasn't for the sake of heaven. And I think part of what they meant by that, possibly, is that Korach didn't care about any of this. Korach just wanted power. He didn't, oh, oh, hey, you guys come over here with me. I'll make you priests. And you you have some anger over here. Like you should stand up to Mo. We'll tear them down. We'll tear them down. That's what, and then I will be in charge. Right. Okay, I think we have time for one more. Agnes. Just to say that it feels like the hardest thing, I think what you said is so beautiful. The hardest thing to do is to hold an open field and refuse to close it in. I mean, I feel like that's what idolatry is, is to, to create an image for God or to like create a limitation for this is the territory in which God exists and this is the territory in which sanctity exists. And like that example you gave earlier of Moses insisting that prophecy can happen anywhere is really insisting that, that sanctity is both like a very specific and special thing, but it also is, doesn't exist within the logic of quantity. And that phrase, Rav Lachem, I feel like is what gives Korach away because he's talking about, you have too much as if there's some limited quantity. Right, um, right. So it's like, it's almost like this weird thing of, and I think about, you know, even the Tatan and Aviram who are, it seems like are in it for more cynical reasons. The idea of being shepherds is, I feel like shepherds love the logic of like strong leadership and sort of people being led along in a coherent and, and way that people don't have to think about it. And what Moses is trying to do is something a little bit more anarchic or more open and connected to this thing of sanctity. So it seems like Korach's willingness to bring together a cynical coalition and his use of this word rab lachem, this like logic of applying a logic of quantity and limitation to something that needs to remain open yeah. and boundless. It feels like that's where he. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's, that's well put, Agnes. I, the, the Korach really, we, we can see if we read carefully, but also because we know this whole story, we can see that there's something manipulative and hungry about Korach's argument. I want, you have too much. What about me? I, like that's, like, hasn't this all been about a like a staggering encounter with like forces beyond? This is the holy that we're talking about here. But again, as we've been saying all along, on the one hand, we, you know, we wonder how, um, how much these people know about all of how authentic this all is. And, and maybe there's some lesson in here about Moses being more transparent, maybe, but also, um, I think that part of what we need to walk away from the Korach story thinking about is um, is the there's there's if there's if the if Korach is nearly successful, it's because there's a sliver of truth in what he's saying that he is articulating some kind of anger that's there or suspicion that's there or worry that we all ought to have that one family is ruling this 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 nation. We should worry about that. But on the other hand, we have to be careful readers. And when we carefully read the story, we start to feel like, whoa, like whether it's just the small phrase of like, I want you, 
I want what you have, you have too much, or whether it's the larger dynamics that I hope we've now started to put into view of all of the various factors in the coalition that Karch somehow was able to bring together to just nearly overthrow the entire, the entire community and, 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 and leave us in chaos, right? Which is what a popular, well-spoken demagogue actually gives us when, when he, he or she uh, uh, gets, gets to power is, is chaos, chaos, right? Because they don't, they don't have a vision. Their vision was power, right? I don't know if that sounds familiar to anyone, but uh, with that, I leave you, leave you till next week. I'll see y'all. Have a good week. <laughs> good week. Okay, that's it. A taste of our weekly Parsha class. Uh, I want to thank everyone who came to the class, some of whose voices you may have heard today, uh, some you didn't because the podcast has been edited. So just want to thank everybody. Um, and speaking of editing, I want to thank also our uh, editor, Vera Blossom, for her great work. If you'd like to join our class sometime and come and, and join our, our circle of, of Torah geeks, you can find us uh, again, Thursdays, 12 p.m. online at ikar.org. That's I-K-A-R.org. And, uh, and if you go to the calendar, uh, then you can find a Zoom link and just click in. And, um, and in the section uh, on the website uh, that, that uh, we keep our classes, you can, if you click on Parsha Study, you'll find all of our archive classes and source sheets and everything we discussed there. So if you're looking for a regular Parsha class, I'd love to see you. Um, and, uh, and in the meantime, I will talk to you next week. 